Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 31. And as you take the time to turn there, I want to acknowledge this morning the uniqueness of this day in the life of our church. As you heard Jeff pray, today we have two men from our church standing in pulpits. And that's amazing. Zane is preaching this morning. Zane Smith is preaching this morning in Ecuador out of the book of Galatians. I'll preach out of the book of Nehemiah. It's not every day that we can say as a church we have two men from amongst us standing in the pulpit proclaiming the word of God. I think Zane's preaching right this minute. Can't say that for sure. We're going to pray in just a second. But I think he's praying right this, preaching right this minute. I know Tanya's not translating for him because Tanya's extremely sick. They've got a lady from that congregation that's translating for him in this message that he's preaching. So we'll pray for Tanya as well, that she would mend quickly because she is a vital asset to what the Lord is doing with our team down there. And then God has scattered us over to Glenrose with a large party of children and adult workers. And they are gathered this morning for worship as well, even though they're not amongst us. So just look at where we are. We're scattered to the ends of the earth as a church. And we do not need to take that lightly. We need to acknowledge the good hand of our God that would take us to such places. So let me pray for us on those fronts. And then we'll get back into Nehemiah chapter 10 and see what God has for us here. Father, we acknowledge you this morning as the good, sovereign God that you proclaim yourself to be in your word. Father, if we go to the equator in South America, you are there. If we go 30 minutes to our east and south in Glenrose, you are there. As we open your Bible, here or there, your presence is made manifest. And we pray this morning that in the three locations that you have us gathered as a church, that you would bless us with the presence of your Holy Spirit so that as the word is opened and proclaimed, it's understood and obeyed. We need you to help us to do that in all the venues that you've taken us today. And we pray this for the glory of Christ and the strengthening of his people until he comes again. Amen. Hmm. Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 31 through 39. Let's be faithful to God in our location that he has us this morning to see what God would have for us from his good, good book. I want to start with a question. Have you ever had a moment in your life when you've encountered the Word of God and it confronted you right where you sat and it changed your attitude or your actions in a particular aspect of your life? I like seeing heads nodding. Well, this happened very specifically to the Israelites in Nehemiah's day. 
For you see in chapter 10, we see people making a pledge to God. They make a pledge to God in response to what they read about God in chapter 9 from the book of the law of Moses. They encountered the word of God and it changed them. And when they heard the word of God, their response was to make vows to God in response to those words. This is how we are to interact with Scripture. This is how God designed His book to be handled by His people. In response to God's word, they made pledges that they would not give their children over to the peoples of the world. That was last Sunday's sermon. If you were not here, I urge you to go get it online. This week, we will see that they, in response to God's word, pledged their Sabbaths to God. And they pledged their assets their resources, their finances to God. So serious were they about these pledges and being obedient and faithful to God that they entered into an oath and a curse when making these pledges. The oath, we don't have it in the text, went something like this. God, with your help, we will not do these things And with your help, we will do these things. With your help. Left to ourselves, we won't be able to fulfill this. And the curse looked like this. If we don't, Lord, do what we pledge, may this, whatever this might be, we're not giving it. May this happen to us. Well, my aim this morning from this text in Nehemiah chapter 10, is to help us make the connection between what God says in His Word and what we do in our lives. That's the aim. And that should be the only aim of every time we gather with a man in the pulpit with the Bible opened. The ultimate question that we're going to ask this morning is, is God first in your life? Or is he not? That's a sermon title. Is God first in your life? Or is he not? From Nehemiah's day, we're going to see that the people and what they do with their finances and their assets and their resources, it reveals who or what is first in their life. So I'm going to say it again. I want you to have this question hovering over you or resting upon you? Is God first in your life or is He not? Well, this morning as we pick up with these Israelites in Nehemiah's day, we see that they make two categories of pledges to God. Last week was one category about their children. This week we see two new pledges. One is what I'm going to call Sabbath pledges and the second is called asset pledges. We'll break each of them down. Let's go first with Sabbath pledges. Look at Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 31. They say to God, and if the peoples of the land, by the way, these are the people they pledged last week not to give their sons and daughters to. If the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. 
and we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. There's two Sabbath pledges right there in that verse. Let's look at them one by one. The first one is related to the Sabbath day. The second one is to the Sabbath year. Let's look at the Sabbath day pledge. If the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we won't buy from them on the Sabbath. We're not going to do it. We're going to refrain from acquiring things on the Sabbath from these people. The understood here is we're not going to buy from one another because it's the Sabbath. So they're even saying we're not going to buy from foreigners, sojourners, the Bible calls them, who are from outside of us. This comes right straight out of the Ten Commandments that God gave in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Just listen to this. I think you're familiar with this commandment. God says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or, listen to this, the sojourner who is within your gates. That's the peoples of the land. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And on that first day, He said, let there be light, and there was light. And on the second day, and on the third day, but on the seventh day, God rested. And so God has established His prescription to His people for Sabbath rest in His creation days, found in Genesis chapter 1. It is made clear from the Decalogue here, the Ten Commandments, That the seventh day belongs to the Lord. It is His day. It is not a day for these Israelites to do with as they please. God gave them six days to work. And He required one day to be given back to Him. These people hadn't done that. So now they're pledging to obey God's commands. And in this pledge, they are vowing to trust God for His provisions on that day when they shut down. Let's look at the second one. There's the Sabbath year. There at the end of verse 31, they say this, second sentence, And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now we're at a seventh year. Six years they are to work it. Seventh year they are to rest it. This comes out of Exodus 23, verses 10 and 11. God says, For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. You to do this that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. So God has established in the law of Moses that these people have read from a Sabbath year, 
a seventh year, that everything is to rest. He makes it very clear the seventh year belongs to him. It is his, not theirs. God gave six years to plant, six years to plant and harvest. He gave six years to lend money and to collect payments. But he required one year for all of that to cease and rest. So that he's the focus of that year. It was a pledge, more so than the Sabbath day. It is a pledge to trust God for his provision in the Sabbath year. 360 days. They trusted the Lord for provision. That's faith, isn't it? They're making a pledge that they're going to have that kind of faith. You know, this issue is extremely close to their experience. This issue is central to all that they've been through in the previous 100 some odd years. I want you to turn back, keep your place there in Nehemiah 10, but go all the way back to to Ezra chapter 1 and then turn one page back to get into 2 Chronicles 36. And I want to show you what this Sabbath year impact is in these people's lives. For at the end of 2 Chronicles, there in chapter 36, we're getting ready for Ezra. These books are in sequence in our Bibles. And over there in chapter 36 of 2 Chronicles, verse 20, we read this. This he that we're going to hear of is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Verse 20, he, Nebuchadnezzar, took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. And look at this. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. God punished Israel for not honoring the Sabbath year. He told them he would do it, and they still defied him. And so he raised up Nebuchadnezzar to throttle these people. And he took them, Nebuchadnezzar took them into captivity. And they were there not one day less, not one day more than 70 years. Because God said, I'm going to get my 70 years of Sabbaths. I want you to understand who this God is. God got his Sabbaths. They were not withheld from him into where he didn't get what he was due. He got his Sabbaths. But the people did not give God his Sabbaths to their demise. God got what he was due, but it was not good for the people because they didn't give him what he was due. Wow, that's a big God, isn't it? He didn't say, well, shucks, they didn't give me my Sabbaths. It's not the God that we worship. He is sovereign. And He is holy. He is righteous and He is just. And He will get from us what He's commanded of us. We need to be joyfully aligned with His commands. And we need to give Him what He is due for His glory and for our benefit. Both are in play. So this idea of Sabbath day and year, these commandments, these these actually require great faith 
on the part of God's people. And that's why God's given them. He's not jacking with us. He's given us these so that we can muster up and build up, leaning on Him, faith, and then we can exercise it. And in exercising this faith to God, we do something called worship. And that's exactly why God has made us, to worship Him. And that's exactly where we thrive, when we worship Him. And so this Sabbath day of rest and Sabbath year of rest required the people to see that everything belonged to God. Everything. Fields, crops, harvests, everything belonged to God and He was sovereignly orchestrating all of the things that were happening. This required them to see that they were stewards. That God had entrusted things to and they were not the owner, God is. That's why He established these Sabbath laws. Because he knows that we are going to put ourselves on the throne if we don't have his good discipline and instruction. Now I want you to think about the justifications that they have probably made over the years to skip these Sabbath days and years. As it relates to the Sabbath day and these sojourners coming into Jerusalem to sell goods, they said, we're not going to buy from the peoples of the land on that day. But they could have said, you know, we're going to serve lost people. And we're going to benefit these pagan people that don't know our God. We'll welcome them into our city. And we're going to exchange with them and buy from them so that they can see the good graces of our God. But God said, no, the Sabbath is a day of rest. I rested in the six days of creation after the six days of creation. I want you to understand that I am God and you are not. No matter what, you need to rest on the Sabbath. So there's no justification here that works to deny God's command. They could have said, if we work on the seventh day, we would make more produce and have more income to have bigger tithes and offerings to give to God in the temple. But God says, I don't need more and bigger. I need heart. I don't care how much I get. I need all of this heart. They could have said, for six years we've worked hard This could really set us back if we neglected our fields for that seventh year. God says, they're my fields. And I will not neglect them. I need you to trust me so that you understand that I am God and you are not. That's the purpose of these Sabbaths. So these Sabbath pledges, oaths, that these Israelites made for the day and the year required great sacrifice on the part of the people. You think about shutting down for a year in your business. This required great sacrifice on the part of the people. And I've got two key points for you right here of application. First, worship that doesn't require sacrifice is not worship. Get that. Worship that does not require sacrifice is not worship. It's benevolence. Here's the second point. God does not need our benevolence. He needs our worship. This isn't about amounts of stuff 
for God. It's about the amount of the heart. So he does not need our benevolence. He requires our worship. That's what we're going to learn here this morning from these Israelites. Okay, so there's the first category of pledges, Sabbath pledges. Let's look at the second category, asset pledges. And I've got four assets that they've pledged here to God. Let's look at them quickly, some quicker than others. The first one, they gave of their finances annually. Look in verse 32. The people say, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. This for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. So they pledge financial resources annually to God. A third part of a shekel, and I have no idea how much that is. I researched and researched. Nobody knows. But it wasn't chump change. They didn't find it in the cushions of their couches. Some say it could be anywhere from $600 in our time of money to $12,000, okay? I, I don't know what it is in that range. So they funded the service of the temple, showbread, grain, burnt offerings, etc. With this third part of a shekel. God had them come home to rebuild the temple. And now they are pledging to God that they're going to refund the temple. Second pledge. Families made material contributions to the community worship of God. Look in verse 34. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. Best place you can find that is Leviticus, somewhere around chapter 16, 17. I can't remember. It's faint, but it's there. So they each took turns in providing wood for the altar that the community burned sacrifices on to atone for their sins. It's a community project here. Confession and atonement, repentance was a community task. We all had skin in the game. We all contributed to the wood supply for this fire because we all need that fire and the animal that rests upon it because we've all sinned. So together, we're going to work according to God's law to fulfill His commands towards our atonement. Children are watching fathers leading and supplying the need of worship and atonement. Third, oh, they gave the firsts. They gave the firsts. Verse 35. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God. Hmm. Look at all the firsts in that block of text. 
I've got five occurrences of the phrase first, word first. What's significant about the first? Why all this firsts? Well, the first is the most anticipated, right? When you plant, when you breed, the most anticipated is the first. It's the most desired. It's the hardest to come by. Because you're not guaranteed it's going to pop out of the ground. You're not guaranteed it's going to rain. You're not guaranteed insects aren't going to take the seed before it comes up. So it's the hardest to come by and it's the most special and often it's the most celebrated. And my goodness, I know we don't live in an agrarian society, but when we plant a garden and the the seed pops out of the soil, we kind of celebrate and say, wow, it worked for a moment. Well, God wants that one. But that's my trophy. God, that's the first one. He says, that's right. Whoever receives the first is acknowledged as the preeminent one. Whoever receives the first, that one is preeminent. He gets the best. He's the owner of that first. And whoever gives the first understands that they're second. (laughs) Understands that they are the steward. And that this first that they have received needs to be given to its rightful owner. The sovereign one. That's what's at play here in the firsts that God calls for from us. He wants us to understand that we're not first. He's first. And that's glorious for Him. And that's good for us. Because it never works for us when we make ourselves first. We'll see evidence of this. As stewards, they pledge to give God, the owner, the firsts. And this demonstrates their heart towards Him. And God knows that they and us, we need opportunities to demonstrate that our heart is for Him first. So He's built opportunities into our lives for us to demonstrate that to Him. They denied themselves of self-gratification in the moment. And they put God first ahead of themselves. And, And listen to this. They are demonstrating that they have shifted their mindset. They have shifted their mindset from one of mine to one of yours. And that's where we have got to live, dear people. We cannot be people that say mine about anything that we own. Children, livestock, assets, businesses. It's not ours. It's yours, God. And you're first and I'm second. You're owner, I'm steward. That's what we are to learn from Nehemiah chapter 10. So I come back to my opening question. Is God first in your life or is He not? On this question, 
the alternatives that we have for firsts is not a long list. And this is where I lived this last week as I asked my que- the, myself the question, is God first or not? The, the or not, there's not a long list. I said, okay, if he's not first, who is? And I don't have eight different categories or candidates for first. I had one. Me. Is God first or am I first? That's, that's it. There's two candidates for first in your life. God or you. And God is urging us, commanding us, equipping us to live a life from these texts that says, you're first, I'm not. Dare I say, I'm even second. So we've got three asset pledges we've looked at. Their finances, their material offerings in this wood, and their firsts. And then we get to a fourth one. Look at verse 37, right after that semicolon probably in your text. They gave a tithe. They pledged to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all of our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chamber of the storehouse. It's very interesting. After all the above giving, money, materials, firstborns, firstfruits, after all of that, Then we get introduced to tithes. I want you to notice that. We finally get to this tenth of our produce. So if they've given a third of a shekel, the first fruits, the firstborn, the wood, we need to understand here this morning that these people are giving to God far more than 10%. It is wrong to assume that the people of the Old Testament gave God 10%. Because that is not what they gave. There's all kinds of formulas out there, but it's safe to say that the people of God annually gave to Him somewhere between 20 and 30%. Some even say 35-38%. So Christianity is not strictly limited to a tithe 10% mentality. The people of God have never given at 10% when they are fully faithful. It's wrong to assume that the modern Christian giving is also limited to 10%. Did you know that the New Testament doesn't even utter the word tithe? Can't find it in all 27 books. The word tithe is not there. It's assumed everywhere. And it's assumed as a starting place, not a destination, not something to graduate to when we finally arrive and get things under control. It's a beginning place. It's a good starting point. It's an expression by us to God that he gets the first. Tithing should be our first fruit to God. 
But as stewards, we are to look for other opportunities to give his assets to him for his glory. And so we're driving past 10%. And it may fluctuate from year to year as God puts opportunities. There's not a number out there that we're gunning for. There's a heart that we're gunning for. A heart that says, not mine, yours. As you direct throughout the year as opportunities arise. Too many of us have lived a long Christian life of saying 10% is God's and 90% is mine. And that is not biblical. The biblical statement is 100% is God's. All of it. And how I even spend it on myself or you name it. Transportation, food, lodging. Even that's deploying God's resources for His glory. God owns all of it, and he entrusts it to us. We owe him 100%. We owe him the first portion. The tithe, the 10%, is the first fruits. Quick aside, I think it's wisest and biblical to generate that 10% through your church. And the above and beyond can go all kinds of places where we have all kinds of personal relationships with all kinds of Christian ministries. But I think it's a good practice to fund the mission of the church with your first fruits because we're doing some pretty aggressive things. Even today, money was involved in going to Glen Rose in the equator. Money will be involved in going to Uganda and so on and so forth. So yes, we need to give to God. We need to give through the church. That needs to be at the level of a tithe, 10%. But the rest of our giving needs to be deployed for Him in other ways as He gives us unique opportunities in the circles that we run in. And we must be wise about where we spend those dollars, right? We need to test them and check them out and make sure that they are God-honoring endeavors before we fund such. So here we have it. They've pledged assets to God. They've pledged days and years to God. And and I want to now take this and show you two vital truths in understanding what these people pledged to God to do. This cannot be overlooked. I want to show you from the book of Ezra and Nehemiah that their worship through giving was unconditional. This is going to hit close to home. Verse 39, let's finish it out. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. Period. Watch this last sentence. We will not neglect... The house of our God. That statement is unconditional. There's no if then. If 
these things happen, we will not then neglect the house of our God. No, this is unconditional. We will not neglect the house of our God, no matter what. There's two things I want to show you here. First is this. The people's giving was not in relationship to their circumstances. And oh, let's take a look at their circumstances. I want you to consider the economic conditions that the people lived in at the time that they're making this pledge. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. This is within days. This is in less than 90 days from the moment that we're in chapter 10. Okay? Actually, it's less than 52 days. Because <laughs> it took them 52 days to build the wall. And within that 52-day period, of which we're just a week or two after here, we read that in Nehemiah 5.1, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. And then we proceed to see four hardships that these people are having to endure. First, we see verse 2. With our sons and daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. They need food at its most basic level to remain living. And they are looking for grain because they don't possess it. Verse 2, or verse 3. We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. So there's a famine that they're living in while they're pledging to God to not buy and sell on the Sabbath and to not plant and harvest in the Sabbath year. They're making that pledge during a famine, folks. Wow. This is unconditional giving to God. They're mortgaging their fields. They don't own them anymore. They've had to mortgage them to get money to buy grain in a time of famine. Look at verse 4. We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. So they're taking out payday loans to pay Artaxerxes back in Persia. And then in verse 5, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. And God, we pledge to give you the first fruits, a third of a shekel. We're going to bring you wood to keep that altar burning. And we're going to give you our tithes. It may be this big, but we're going to give you our tithes. And our Levites are going to give you a tithe of a tithe. In spite of our circumstances that are difficult. Because you're first. We're not. And our circumstances are not beyond your sovereign determination that this is what you should provide for us in this time. It does not change that you are due what you are due because of who you are. You are our God. So the people are in the throes of economic disarray, disarray and famine. And they say, no Sabbath for us, 
No Sabbath work, buying. No Sabbath planning or harvesting for us. No, no collecting and exacting of debt in that Sabbath year for us, even though we're desperate for money. We're going to let that go that year because you have said so. They pledge to God to give to Him faithfully and unconditionally. So I'm going to ask a question in context of that. What do we allow to keep us from giving to God? They, they are pledging that they're not going to let anything keep them from giving to God. They will not neglect the house of their God. Well, the things that keep us from giving, let's just be very honest this morning. It's the love of money and possessions. That's why we don't give to God. Love ourselves more than we love our God. Our personal desires for saving and spending are first on us and not on God. God's warned us of this, 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. Those who desire to be rich, and when we love money and possessions, we want to be rich. And rich is always in context. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Do you hear Israel in this? They loved money and so they forsook the Sabbath years 70 times over. And so they experienced ruin and destruction when Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem and hauled them off as prisoners for 70 years. You hear it? They pierced themselves with many pangs because they lived in Babylon. And they came back to Jerusalem and their wall was torn down and their temple was destroyed. The altar couldn't even be found. They were pierced with many pangs. They wandered away from the faith. And it cost them dearly. There's a great Roman philosopher named Seneca who said, Money never made anyone rich. That's what that verse means, 1 Timothy 6. You will not be rich because you have money. In fact, I'll... Add to this, this is the philosopher Edward in 2018. Money has often, if not always, yeah, I'm going to take that off. Money has many times made people poor. We're talking in the spiritual realm now. Money doesn't make a man rich. Money just might make you extremely poor for eternity. Other reasons, we, we say, I've got debt burdens, and they drag us down and disable us from giving to God. Well, even in debt, we must still give to God first. He comes ahead of the creditors. He's not a creditor, he's an owner. <laughs> he's a sovereign. And then comes creditors. So even if we have debt, we must give to God first. We need to learn from Scripture that they didn't wait to get out of debt, nor did they wait to build an emergency fund. And both of those things are very important, and we should be pursuing. 
But as we're getting out of debt and as we're building an emergency fund, we still must give the first to God. It's learned from Scripture that these people truly put God first even in their financial hardship. And their giving was an unconditional act of worship. And God has given us this text to show us how we today ought to live. Here's the second point I want to show you. First, they gave in spite of their circumstances. Look at this next one. The people's giving was not out of need and deprivation of the temple. (laughs) Wow, let's consider their history. I'll, I'll abbreviate some of this. In 538 B.C., Zerubbabel and Jeshua lead the first wave of Israelites out of Babylon, out of Persia, back into Jerusalem. And the king at that time loads them down with treasure. It was like a second exodus when the people left Egypt way back before this. And these people had all the assets and all the financial resources they could ever want. Well, 80 years later, in 458 B.C., we hit Ezra. And when Ezra returns with the second wave of returnees, we see in Ezra chapter 7, verse 17, this. Artaxerxes says, With this money then you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls on you to provide, listen to this, you may provide out of the king's treasury. Blank check, Ezra. You have access to the king's treasury for whatever is needed to worship your God in that temple that has been rebuilt. Do you think the temple needed money? No. There is no need for financial resources in the temple of God. He's got the treasury of Artaxerxes at his disposal. The most powerful and the most wealthy king in the known world at that time. And one of the top wealthiest leaders in countries in the history of the world. He's got that treasury at his disposal. God. So God funded his rebuild of Jerusalem with the treasury of the Persian Empire. But now God wants to fund the temple worship with the treasury of his people. And I'm telling you, God knows that the treasury of Artaxerxes and the treasury of his people, night and day different. But the economy of our God is not based on decimal points and commas and zeros. God's economy operates on hearts of His people. So we need to learn from Scripture here that God did not need their money. He required their heart and their worship. He's got a whole different economic system, doesn't He? And yet we're living in the world's economic system, even as we consider giving to this God that has an economy like nothing we've ever seen on this planet. 
the way God knew that he had their heart was revealed with what they did with what he gave them, no matter how much or how little. And the same is true for you, no matter how much God has entrusted you. As long as you've been a good steward, you do not need to be embittered towards God that he's entrusted little to you. You do not need to be puffed up that God entrusted much to you. You need to say, God, you're first and you've entrusted this to me. I'm going to give you my first fruits and more as you direct for your glory and for my benefit. So I'm going to conclude like this. You know, we've got a God here in the Bible that didn't ask them and doesn't ask us to do something that he himself wasn't willing to do for us. God gave us life for his glory. He gave it to us. We did nothing to earn this life that we have, to draw oxygen into our lungs. We didn't do anything. God chose to give us life, physical life. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7, God says, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God owns us, made us, and the purpose is for His glory. So He gave us life, and then He entrusts assets to us as we live. We need to understand the affront it is to God when under those truths we put ourselves first. That is an affront to the sovereign, supreme God who made us. He also, though, didn't stop there. He also gave us new life. An eternal life. God so loved the world. Here's how God loved the world. He gave us His only begotten Son. So that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. He's given us two lives, physical and spiritual We are His. He gave us His firstborn Son. He gave us His first. He gave us Jesus Christ. His only Son. His sinless Son He gave on a cross. So that we, through belief, might have eternal life. Understand the affront to God when we understand what he's given to us in Christ Jesus and then withhold from him what was his to begin with our life and our assets these people knew that the best place they could be was in the place of loving joyfully unconditional obedience to God And God is showing us from this book that that is how we, too, are to live in 2018. We must read this book, we must understand this book, and we must do this book. 
That's our call. And that's our most joyful way of living, by the way. When God's glorified in how we do that. So these people made a covenant of response to God and His faithfulness. And I've told you in the last couple of weeks, this was not a covenant of works. This was a covenant of response and worship and thanksgiving for God and all His faithfulness. So, this morning we have sung about God's sovereignty. We've read Genesis 1, 1 through 3. We read Colossians 1, 15 to 20, the preeminence of Christ, the firstness of Christ. We have centered this morning on acknowledging that God owns everything, even that which He has entrusted to us. And I want to say this. We must not be a people who see money and possessions as a right. They are not our right as if we were the owners or the earners of such. We must be a people who see giving as a privilege. Born out of God entrusting assets and resources to us. So here's my ultimate question, and I'll close with this. Is God first in your life, or is He not? What you do with your resources and your assets and your life will reveal reveal who is first and who is not. Let's pray. Father, all Scripture is breathed out by You, and all Scripture is profitable for the end of teaching us, reproofing us, correcting us, and training us in righteousness. You've given us Your Scriptures so that we, the people of God, may be competent and equipped for every good work. Would you take your scripture this morning and accomplish those ends in us and our lives today and for as long as it takes for us to come to your side or Christ to come again and gather us. We pray this in his name. Amen.